Well, good morning. Welcome to the last chapel before reading week. No woohoo? Nobody excited? I know. Uh, I've always wondered if reading week is an accurate uh, name for next week. Everybody have stacks of books or just naps they're planning to take? Um, well, this morning I wanted to reminisce with you a little bit to a time in Wilmore before most of you got here. Uh, for years, there was a Christian music festival that happened here in Wilmore, Kentucky, that was known around the world. It was known as the Ichthus Music Festival. Tens of thousands of people would come and camp here in Little Wilmore. Uh, youth groups would come, college groups would come, churches would bring droves of people. Tents and campers would pop up all over town. People's front yards would become campgrounds as this town quadrupled, quintupled. I don't even know how much the size of this town increased. And people would come to hear all the latest Christian bands and wonderful preachers. For a while it was at the campground, which is over by the elementary school, and then for years at uh, what's now Centennial Park. If you walk through Centennial, you can still see the stage set up there. And as with any good Christian event, Ichthus Music Festival would end on the last night with an altar call, a call to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. Only this wasn't an ordinary altar call, this is Wilmore. And so this was an altar call in a town with a college and a seminary and lots of education about best faith practices to help other people follow Jesus. This is Asbury Territory. And so we weren't going to simply have people bow their heads and pray a prayer or even raise their hands to accept Christ. We weren't even going to simply have people come to the front down and pray and then head back to their seats in their homes, hoping their Christian commitment would stick. No, we were going to walk them through it step by step and then make sure someone followed up with them. So there was an entire committee just for the altar call a huge team dedicated to evangelism at this event. And one year as a student here at Asbury, I signed up along with about 100 others to serve in what was called the evangelism tent. It was a place where when the altar call happened and people came down, they would bring them to this tent to meet with counselors. That was us uh, whenever they came forward to make a decision for Christ. And when people came forward, they were led in this long line to the evangelism tent And we would explain the gospel, lead them to Christ, and they get their information and send it on to their youth minister or their pastor or a pastor in the town to follow up with them for discipleship. Sound like something an educational institution would invent? I mean, we were on it. We knew every step. And those of us who were the evangelism counselors, we went to a training, sort of like a class, to learn how to lead people to Christ And we were taught several models to use that we could pick from for this process. One of them was called the Roman Road. Anybody seen this before? It was a series of Bible verses from Romans leading people through the steps to become a Christian. This one even says the Romans Road to Heaven. Because if you followed this road, these uh, verses in Romans, that's where you'd end up, in heaven. This is a great tool to help people understand how God deals with sin that saves us and brings us to heaven. Another one was called the bridge illustration. We were sinful people on one side, and there was a holy God on the other side with a gap in between. We ourselves had no way of reaching him, but the cross became a bridge 
that we could cross over to reach God. And when we did, we were no longer in our sinful territory, but in God's holy territory. And the third illustration we were offered uh, was called the throne illustration. I think this one uh, fit my rudimentary drawing skills pretty well, because all you had to do was draw a little stick figure chair in the middle and place an S on it for self. This is the state of all of humanity, with ourselves sitting on the throne in control, ruling our lives. Our own interests and priorities and responsibilities are scattered about us, and Jesus, if you see the cross in the corner, is outside of that circle. This kind of life is all about me and my wishes, but it also leads to misery. Anybody experience that? Um, Sometimes that misery comes slowly and subtly, but it always comes, because we just aren't equipped for this throne. We weren't created for it. So we would walk people through a prayer that would lead them to this next step. If we give our lives to Christ, it would be transformed. We would invite Jesus to sit on the throne of our lives, and that little S would be down at the foot of the throne, worshiping and bowing before him. Our interests and priorities that were once scattered and chosen for selfish reasons were now acts of worship centered around the throne, pointing to Christ, ordered as acts of worship in our lives. And the good news, and there was a lot of good news here about Christ on the throne of our lives, is that it was actually his seat in the first place. We had just taken it over, and he is actually equipped for it where we are not. As he's all-knowing, we can trust his guidance. As he's all-loving, we can trust his heart and intentions for us. As he is all-powerful, not only can we trust him with our needs and problems, but with everything troubling the universe. He was created to rule, and it's foolish to dethrone him and put ourselves in his place, and yet we all do it. So the last night of the Ichthus Music Festival, I was so nervous. I was going to lead someone to Christ. Uh, More than one someone, probably, because there were tens of thousands of people there. And I felt the weight of responsibility. If you've ever felt this weight, it is just hard to explain. I had written down the verses of the Roman road in the back of my Bible, so I didn't have to memorize them. I had practiced drawing that little gap and fitting a cross right across it so that it touched both edges exactly, leading us from our sinful selves into God's holy world. And I drew again and again little chairs with a little S on them, practicing how I would explain to someone what it was like to put self on the throne, and then how we could surrender that throne and allow Jesus to take his rightful place there. And then that night after the speaker preached and the musicians played and an altar call was given, hundreds of people answered. They came forward, and they were led to the evangelism tent, and that was our time. That was our shining moment. All the training had prepared us for this, to say the right things to convince people to give their lives to Christ. I was ready. My three models were all polished up, hidden in the back of my Bible as crib notes, and ready to go. Only I was a little disappointed, because there wasn't any convincing needed. Those I met with there that night were so ready to meet Jesus that they had already said yes to him on their way to that tent. Maybe even during the band's last song, maybe even while the preacher was praying, maybe even on the first night of that festival, they had just been waiting for the altar call to make it official. And they didn't need convincing. Um, They didn't want to hear an explanation. They just wanted to pray. They didn't really want to hear me talk. 
They just wanted to talk to Jesus. And that was one of those lifelong lessons that I didn't get in a classroom about how evangelism was much more about what God was doing than any carefully calculated words that came out of my mouth. And so it was best to stand back, ask questions, and let God have his way with people. And that night I got to meet with five people who gave their lives to Christ. I was awestruck, and I have never forgotten it. I've also never forgotten that phrase, Jesus is on the throne. It is a phrase that echoes in my head many days. Jesus is on the throne. Have you heard people say that? It's a common thing that we tell each other, mostly when things are going wrong in the world. When we want a reminder, if we look at this fallen and sinful world, that there is a more perfect reality waiting for us. Jesus is on the throne. Um, This seems to be our answer for many upsetting or anxiety-producing realities. If you don't like the election results, Jesus is on the throne. If your denomination's imploding as you're about to graduate, Jesus is on the throne. Are the disasters and injustices and struggles of the world weighing on you? Don't forget, Jesus is on the throne. Anybody have an avalanche of last-minute papers and assignments that they should have done in September as the semester draws to an end? No worries. Jesus is on the throne. When things are rough, we like to remind ourselves that Jesus is on the throne, that Jesus is king. And that phrase, Jesus is king, that seems to be popping up all over the place these days. It's the name of a new album by the recently converted artist Kanye West, which is getting a lot of attention inside and outside of Christian circles. It's as if the whole world suddenly has their eyes on that phrase, Jesus is king. I wonder how many times it's been Googled lately. In fact, it's possible that more people are now all at the same time asking the question, what does it mean that Jesus is king? than possibly at any other time in human history. We thought about doing all Kanye songs in chapel today to celebrate, but we weren't sure if Danny Kaye and the seminary singers were ready for that quite yet. We're going to give them another semester before we do an all Kanye chapel. Believe it or not, uh, Kanye is not the first one to turn our eyes in worship or wonder to Jesus' kingship. This weekend, the Christian calendar ends for the year with a Sunday called Christ the King Sunday. That's right, the year is ending at the end of this week, Sunday, November 24th. Our happy new year in the Christian calendar begins on December 1st with the first Sunday of Advent. So Christ the King Sunday, this Sunday, is the last Sunday in the Christian year. Pope Pius XI established Christ the King Sunday back in 1925 to counter what he regarded as the destructive forces of the modern world, secularism creeping over the West and the rise of communism and fascism in an era that would soon see Nazism seizing Germany and much of the area. And think about it. In the face of the ideologies of secularism, threatening to delete the idea that the world is a place created by God that God inhabits, And in the face of the powerful forces of Nazism about to try to seize hold of the world, 
the Pope created a Sunday in the Christian calendar declaring Jesus is king. Jesus is on the throne. He wanted to stop the evil force of the world by opposing them with the rule of Christ. Look out, blind secularism. Look out, power-hungry Nazis. Jesus is king. Jesus is on the throne. And what seems to be a simple uh, day on our church calendars was actually a shot fired in the battle for for control of human history, trying to turn our attention as a church towards Jesus' lordship. And I love that this day in the Christian calendar is placed at the very end of our year. I love that we come to the end of the year and celebrate that Jesus is king, that it's our New Year's Eve of sorts, just before we turn the page of the calendar to a new year that begins with Advent. The Christian year begins in Advent with a longing for a king, a Messiah to be born, and it ends with a declaration that not only was the Messiah born, he is ruling on the throne of the universe that he created. This is a great cycle for us to repeat year after year, the reminder that God does what God has come to do, and we walk through it in worship every single year as a sort of subversive act to every other calendar that dominates our attention the academic calendar, the calendar where we place our events, the sports calendars that dominate our televisions, all of the other calendars submit to this one that repeats on a cycle every year. Scott McKnight reminds us what a powerful tool the Christian calendar is, as he puts it, to gospelize our life. Here's what he says. The church calendar is all about the story of Jesus, and I know of nothing other than regular soaking in the Bible that can gospelize our life more than the church calendar. Anyone who's half aware of the calendar in a church that is consciously devoting to, devoted to focusing on these events in their theological and biblical context will be exposed every year to the whole gospel, to the whole story of Israel coming to its saving completion in the story of Jesus. If you think about Jesus' story, you, you can track it on the basis of his kingship, Gabriel announces to Mary that the Lord God would give her son the throne of David and that he would rule over the house of Jacob forever. The Magi come looking for a newborn king of the Jews. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, crowds hailed him as king, and he's arrested for claiming to be one, and the soldiers mock him as one. When Pilate asks if he is king of the Jews, Jesus replies, You say so. And the charge written against him is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Jesus announced again and again that the kingdom of God was among us. He taught on it. He told stories about it. And he embodied it. Instead of rising to a throne, he rose on a cross and rose from a tomb. Leslie Newbegin declares, the resurrection is the revelation to chosen witnesses of the fact that Jesus who died on the cross is indeed the king. And listen to this. At the very end, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, John of Patmos alerts us to the revelation of God's reality. And what role do we find Jesus in there? What is Jesus doing at the end? What permanent picture does the Lord choose to reveal to us of his vocation in the redeemed creation? Revelation 4 says this, after this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, 
And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. This is the eternal picture of our Jesus, one sitting on a throne. Let me tell you that Revelation 4 is near and dear to my heart. Almost every week that we pray down this hall in Loose Chapel, right before each chapel, I pray, Lord, have you left the door standing open today? When we come to worship, can we catch a glimpse of the elders around the throne? Can we join their worship? Five years ago, when I joined the staff at Asbury as dean of chapel, they held an installation service for me here in Estes Chapel. It was in the fall of 2014. A handful of you were there, and it might be time to graduate. But (laughs) just saying, you might be PhD students. That's fine, too. That's all right. So for that day, the day of my installation service, I had to pick a passage to preach on. Uh, one that I felt had to describe my vision for worship ministry here, and I chose Revelation 4. That's the last day that I preached on this passage. I love that picture of the door standing open in heaven. It is really the whole basis for my theology of worship, that God has left a door open from heaven to earth and invited us to stand and glimpse in what's going on in the heavenly throne room. I love that we don't have to push that door. We don't have to pry that door. God has left a door standing open. And what we find there is Jesus sitting on the throne at the heart of the universe. Jesus is king. What does it mean for Jesus to sit on a throne? Uh, Two things and probably more. But the first two are that he is ruling and he is resting. First, let's talk about ruling. A king who sits on a throne is occupying the highest position of power in the land. To sit on the throne of a kingdom is to declare authority over everything and everyone in their scope. We don't say that Jesus has a throne. We say Jesus is on the throne. That means he has taken the authority, and no matter what is happening in the world, Jesus is ruling, occupying the seat of authority, and just like in that little illustration with the S or the cross, there's, there's only room for one on this throne. There can't be two kings on a throne. And Jesus is in it. It's his seat. Jesus is ruling, but he's also resting. If the throne were contested, if there was a battle going on that would threaten the authority of the king, he wouldn't be on the throne. He would be out fighting those battles, warding off any threat to someone who was a challenger who might dare unseat him. But Jesus, he's not out in battle. He's on the throne, uncontested. If there were problems in the kingdom that were so bad that they caused the king any anxiety or worry or stress, the king might be up on his feet, pacing, walking around the throne room. But Jesus isn't worried. He's not stressed. He's sitting. He's ruling and resting. Jesus is chill. And listen to this. There are 24 elders whose thrones are in a circle around his. They're all facing Jesus, and they're all sitting too. Because Jesus isn't anxious, they don't have to be anxious. Because Jesus is chill, those who worship him are chill. 
No one is freaking out. Jesus is on the throne. Keep your eyes on him. If the empires of this world aren't giving him pause or cause to pace and stress and go to battle as if to decide who's ultimately king, then you don't need to either. Jesus has settled it. The one thing that these elders do besides sit is this. They get up, they fall down before the throne, they take off their crowns, and they throw them down at Jesus' feet. This is a posture of worship, to cast off everything and give it to Jesus in worship. Jesus is all that matters in this room. We long for nothing but him, nothing that has been placed on us for authority or identity or security even matters anymore when Jesus is at the center. All that we receive in this lifetime, we receive simply to give back to him in worship. You are going to have crowning moments in your ministry. I pray that you will. I pray that you'll receive the gift of authority gladly, and then you will immediately return it to Jesus in worship, bowing and casting it at Jesus' feet as an offering. If any of us wear our crowns for too long, we may come to doubt who belongs on that throne. And if we're honest with ourselves, removing ourself from the throne and placing Jesus on it is not something that just happens once when we give our hearts to Christ. It is a daily discipline to remember that we're not ruling, we're not reigning, and remind ourselves to give Jesus his seat back. Here's the thing, though, about a door standing open in heaven. It opens both ways. God's holiness is not something to be contained, left off in heaven while we flounder on earth, wishing for the day we could get there. Through the throne of Jesus, through the cross, this door is left standing open, and holiness is escaping out like air conditioning when you leave the door open to the front of your house. And the place it's escaping to is this world, the one we're living in right now. God is not just after transforming hearts, although he loves to do that. He wants the whole world, nothing left out. He wants to right all that's wrong, to renew all of creation until it's all new again. Those illustrations that I was taught to use to lead people to Christ all those years ago, they're beautiful things, but some of them left me with a sense of incompleteness. The Roman road that I was taught was taught as a pathway to heaven. That title was at the top of it. It's a great thing to teach people about salvation and getting to heaven, but what about the rest of the time that we spend here? Could the road lead to us offering renewal and holiness to this earth where we live and not just biding our time and waiting for a day that we get to celebrate in heaven? The bridge illustration that I was taught, I don't think that cross is really just a one-way bridge so that we escape our sinful humanity here and live forever in heaven with God. What if that bridge is meant to be crossed both ways? What if God's power crosses back into this realm and makes this earth look more like he intended it to look? The kingdom is not something that we escape to someday. 
is something we find ourselves living in here and now, even in the imperfect world of crazy elections, imploding denominations, global crises, end-of-semester stress, Jesus is on the throne, not somewhere else. Here, now. The kingdom of God is not a reminder that someday, somewhere far off, we'll live in a world finally where Jesus is king. But the door is standing open to heaven, not just so that we will creep in, but so that holiness will seep out into the entire world so that the kingdom of God will come here on earth just as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is among you, Jesus told us. Indeed, it is. And it's coming. And so it will be. Lately, there's been a groundswell, surprising one, I think, of people who have begun to take issue with the phrase, the kingdom of God. Uh, More to the point, there are people who have removed kingdom language altogether and coined a new term, the kingdom of God. Uh, The kingdom of God is more than just a typo, taking out a G in the kingdom. For some people, um, they've remarked the word kingdom feels too antiquated for our world now, too patriarchal, too hierarchal for today. And so they substitute this new word, kingdom, which focuses more on the familial relationships that God creates, the family of God, the kingdom of the relationships among those who follow him. The problem is that kingdom takes God out of the center focus and instead puts God's people in the spotlight. And I love God's people, but I don't think we're ready to bear that kind of burden. If you think kingdoms have issues, have you seen any families lately? (laughs) And listen, because this is important. Just because something God has given us has been misused by people doesn't mean we should throw it out, but that we should go back and see what God was trying to show us in the first place and then to redeem its original purpose and meaning that God intended. Just because we might have had a bad experience with someone named Father doesn't mean we should stop calling God Father. Just because there have been missteps and mistakes in relationships between women and men doesn't mean we put up a dividing wall and not have men and women meeting or working together, sending them into separate corners of the church or the workplace. And just because earthly kingdoms can be places of hierarchy and patriarchy and colonialism doesn't mean that we throw out the language that God has chosen to reveal his nature as sovereign ruler of the earth. Let God's goodness overwhelm and redefine the way to be in these relationships. Not our sinful nature overwhelming what God meant. If you keep redesigning your faith in reaction to human mistakes, you're going to be editing the lectionary of faith constantly, over and over again, in a reactionary and reductionistic way. I can just imagine God telling us, don't define yourselves in reaction to those who got it wrong. Look at me. I got it right. Don't try to not be like them. Just try to be like me. And here's the thing about a king. He doesn't really care full if you're comfortable with his kingship or not. He's the king no matter your comfort level. No matter what you want to call it, Jesus is king. Here's the real reason why I think naming Jesus as king makes us uncomfortable. And if we are honest, it makes all of us uncomfortable. It's because there's not room for two on that throne. It is either you 
or Jesus. And it is a daily decision and discipline. This is about so much more than a single prayer and about getting into heaven. It is about letting God rule and reign in every decision, every relationship, every motive, every moment, and then letting him use you to bring that holiness and redefinition to the world around us. I think most of the controversy and people that are holding their breath about Kanye declaring that Jesus is king is waiting not just to see what his lyrics will say, but waiting to see what his life will say. And whether or not in the long run it will reflect the rule and reign of Christ. And that, that remains to be seen because that's a question for all of us. No matter whether we've prayed a single prayer or enrolled in a seminary, or gotten a job where our title declares us a professional Christian of some kind, in the long run, our lives will be shaped by who we allow to sit on that throne, who rules and reigns in our lives. Um, Sometimes we see things so often that we stop really seeing them. So there's a a piece that we worship with in chapel every week that I want to call to your attention and remind you of, and it's this. Our cross that we worship around in chapel, the one that we prayed over you around at New Student Orientation, the one that we will pray over you around at your graduate's chapel, the cross has a symbol on it. And if you've noticed, that symbol changes throughout the church year. Sometimes it's a descending dove of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's Greek letters, Cairo. Sometimes, and in this season, it is Christ the King. It was his victory on the cross And his resurrection from the dead that sealed his authority, seated him at the right hand of God the Father, and brought him to rule and reign. And so we experience that every time this cross is at the center of our worship in chapel. So after we sing our closing song today, this cross will be processed again into a place front and center of our room, our worship shaped as our hearts should be shaped. And just as Jesus is at the center of the throne room, where the door stands open in heaven today, and your worship is somehow combined with the worship of eternity sung before the throne. And instead of having the scripture reading uh, for this sermon before the sermon today, we wanted to have it at the end. So the very last part of this chapel will be the reading of Revelation 4, before the cross where King Jesus rules. When it's read, I want to invite you to move as you feel led. If you want to come towards it, that's fine. If you want to sit as those who have no concern because Jesus is ruling, sit. If you want to bow as those casting crowns, you may even want to physically tell God again with your hands that you are removing something placed on you and giving it to him in worship. If you want to kneel, that's fine. And if you want to, as those elders did, lay prostrate on the floor as you hear those words read, that's okay too. Jesus is on the throne this morning. There's nothing nothing that we do that can remove him. But for our lives, we remind ourselves that it's our choice to let him rule and reign over our hearts, our decisions, our motives, and that that is a daily prayer. Will you pray with me now?